following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. Good evening to those who are uh, joining us online this just now, and uh, hope that you are encouraged by the time and the word that we're about to have. Those who are here, it's good to see you. Brother James, good to see you this evening. Uh, the folks that are here this evening. If I were to tell you that it is okay to boast, what would you think about that kind of statement? It's okay to boast. You probably would uh, think of a number of scriptures that would contradict that kind of statement. Pride goeth before the fall, and similar kind of statements that are in our scripture that tell us that that's not the kind of character, that's not the kind of uh, qualities that emulate a Christ-like person, but uh, I will make the argument that there is an exception to that case this evening we will see in our text. And so I invite you now to turn in your Bible, your your, uh, scripture passage there, your portion of God's Word to Galatians chapter 6, there in your Bible where we will pick up uh, in our study of Galatians in chapter 6, verses 14 and 15 this evening. And I've titled our message this evening, our, our teaching portion, Boasting is Okay. And uh, you'll see exactly why I make that statement, and that uh, it is okay according to the text that we have this evening. Now, if you remember from last time, if Perhaps you're joining online for the first time, and uh, I invite you to go back and look at our earlier studies in Galatians, and particularly the immediate context of verses 11 through 13, that message there, where Paul calls out the Judaizers' self-centered pride that they have. And in verses 11 through 13, uh, Paul reveals that this self-centered pride manifests itself in a way uh, that they were trying to persuade the Galatian believers to become circumcised. We see this in verses 12 and 13, particularly, where Paul writes, As many as desire to make a good showing in the flesh, that is, alluding to the Judaizers, these, these ones, would compel you to be circumcised, only that they may not suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. So, Uh, This self-centered pride that the Judaizers have is manifesting itself in this way, that they are compelling the Galatian believers to become circumcised. Why do they do this? What, What is motivating them to do this? Well, this effort to persuade the Galatian believers to become circumcised was not a God-centered kind of motivation, not a God-centered, God-pleasing motivation, but a self-centered motivation. They were afraid for their own safety, understanding that if their allegiance was with Christ alone, apart from works, they would face persecution like Paul had faced for the gospel, both from Jews and unbelieving Gentiles alike. And so the Judaizers hoped that identifying themselves with the law of Moses would help them and protect them as in, in the face of other Jews, having that 
Jewish kind of status, one that had allegiance to the law of Moses that was being protected and even enjoyed even under the Roman influence that they were under. And so the Judaizers, they, they, uh, they identified themselves with the law of Moses. They compelled or sought to compel the Galatian believers to become circumcised for their own benefit, a self-centered reason. First, like I said, so that they would not have to face the same kind of persecution that Paul was facing. And secondly, we see in verse 13, so that they could boast in their self-accomplishments. Look at verse 13. Paul writes, For not even those who are circumcised, that is the Jews, and specifically in this case the Judaizers, that, that kind of sector of, of the Jews, for not even these keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. The Judaizers' interest in the Galatians becoming circumcised was so that they could boast in their own accomplishments. Though they themselves, as Paul writes, could not keep the law of Moses, they zealously worked to win converts to the law so that they could boast in their effectiveness in gaining proselytes. And so we see in both these reasons, one, to avoid persecution, and secondly, to boast in their accomplishments, this was not a God-centered kind of motivation, but a self-centered pride, one that boasted in their own achievements and in their self-meritorious deeds. Now in verses 14 and 15, Paul is going to condemn this kind of self-centered pride, and for that fact, any other form of boasting. Besides, we'll see one exception, which we, he will elaborate upon in these verses. In verses 14, Paul writes this. He says, But God forbid that I should boast. Now, if we stopped there, we would wholeheartedly agree, although we will agree with the rest of the verse, and we say amen to that, that we should not boast. The phrase, God forbid, really means, may it never be. May it never be this way, that I would boast. The point is that the Bible strictly forbids us to boast or take pride in the kind of way mentioned in verses 12 through 13, but we could also go further to say in any other form or for any other reason as well, whether it be uh, self-meritorious kind of works, whether it be any kind of uh, worldly accomplishments that we perhaps make or endeavor to accomplish. Nothing we do is worthy of our boasting in. In fact, anything that we accomplish, whether it be just in our family or in our sphere of influence, our workplace, as a believer, in our church, all of that is for God's glory. And so we do not boast in those kind of things. We do not take pride in that. Sure enough, we can take pride in the fact that we work hard, but it's because we know that it is only because of what Christ has done in us that we even have the strength to do those kind of things. And so... Again, even that kind of pride or boasting or self-accomplishing feelings all point back to what God has done in us. But here specifically in verses 12 and, or in verses 14, Paul is, is specifically thinking back to verses 12 through 13 where we don't boast in our works or any attempt to merit favor before God or how we, bef we appear before men. That kind of thinking 
that leads to pride is like the thinking of the unbeliever, and that is not the kind of mindset that we ought to have. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 9, these verses teach us that salvation excludes self-meritorious works, which otherwise would be cause for boasting. Let me read that to you, although I know you're familiar, uh, at least those who are here with us this evening are familiar with these verses. But in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. Let me emphasize that again. It's by faith. Paul goes on to write, And that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works. Why? Lest anyone should boast. Here again we see the idea, the negative sense of boasting. This is not something we are to boast in. We cannot boast in it because it is a gift of God. It's not been merited by anything we've accomplished. It's not in and of ourselves that we, have, we, have, we can take any claim to the faith that we even have. That, is, that in itself is a gift of God. And so we have no reason to boast. Verse 10, verse 9 says, Not of works, lest anyone should boast. And then verse 10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so Paul, going back to Galatians chapter 6, verse 14, tells us there is no place for pride. God forbid it. May it never be so that I should boast. And then he gives us this one exception clause, though, that continues on in the rest of verse 14 and into 15, where Paul says this, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. So let's think about this for a moment. Paul says there is no reason to boast except for one reason. There's one exception clause, one exception to this idea of boasting, and that is that we are permitted, or maybe I should say we are encouraged, we are exhorted to boast in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we see uh, three kind of crucifixions mentioned here. Let me bring those out just for a moment and we'll talk about them. First, we see the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ at the uh, here in verse 14 where he talks about the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. The second one that we see is in the, in the following uh, clause there, phrase, where he says, by whom the world has been crucified to me. So the second crucifixion which we see in the third there, in the end of verse 14, where he says, and I to the world. Perhaps we could put in parentheses there or, or, or brackets next to I, uh, where it would say, by whom the world has been crucified to me, and I have been crucified to the world. It's implied there, though Paul leaves it out um, in, in the last part of verse 14. But the meaning and the, and the implication is there that he has been crucified to the world. So let's unfold these three un, these crucifixions to understand exactly what Paul is talking about here. First, we see the cross of Christ mentioned in the middle of verse 14. And when we think about the cross, we think about it 
uh, in its historical context, it's an instrument of death. The cross was an instrument of death. However, the significance of the cross for the believer is in the one who was nailed to the cross, not just the idea of it being an instrument of death. And in this case, in this sense, this is the cross of Christ Jesus. It is Christ's cross, and that is the significance, that is where the significance comes in. Therefore, when Paul says that there is one exception to boasting, which is in the cross of Christ, he does not merely have in mind the wooden beams to which Christ was nailed, but the whole cross work of Christ. That is, his substitutionary atonement, the things which were accomplished through Christ on the cross. When we think of the cross as, the, as a believer, we do not think about it merely as an instrument of death, but an instrument to carry out God's plan of salvation. We think of it not only as a means of Christ's death, but also a means of carrying out God's plan. We think of it as the only means by which we can be saved from our sins, that is, Christ's death on the cross as a means of paying the price for our sin. And so when we think of what Paul is saying here, we understand that he is talking about the cross as it relates to Christ's payment for our sins, not just an instrument of death. Think just for a moment with me all that entails was entailed on the work Christ's work on the cross. Not just his death, but also his burial and his resurrection. That is the cross work. That is the whole, the entirety of it. Without the burial, without the resurrection, the cross of Christ would fall short of giving us the life that we have in Christ. So we see first the crucifixion of Christ in the, in the middle here of verse 14, but then Paul goes on and talks about another kind of crucifixion, not, not looking back merely to just Christ's crucifixion, but also one in which the believer has symbolically undergone as well. Paul writes, By whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Now the phrase, by whom can also be translated in another sense, in which it would be translated by which. Now, think with me that just for a second about this. Paul uh, has experienced some change in his life by the cross, and that is through the gospel. And uh, thinking back just to a moment for the idea of by whom or by which, although by whom connects this statement back to Christ, whereas by which would seemingly connect it back to the cross, there is no cross without Christ and no Christ as in, in its relationship to salvation without the cross. So whether you translate it by whom or by which, it's really the same thing, because if we would look at just the cross, it would have no significance without Christ. 
And as it relates to salvation, without the cross, or without Christ and the cross, there would be no significance either. And so whether you translate it one way or another, they both are significant, and both are important, and connect the two together. Now, what does Paul mean when he says, by whom the world has been crucified to me? Think for a moment with me to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5. In verse 19, Well, let me begin in verse 18, where John writes this, We know that whoever is born of God does not sin. Now, John's not saying that, uh, not teaching some form of perfectionism, as if the believer is never expected to sin again, as if uh, his salvation or his justification completely eradicates even the possibility of sin. Or like some others preach, that at some point in your salvation, and your, should I say in your sanctification, you reach a level of perfection. And at that point, you, your rest of your Christian life, you have never sinned again. That's not the kind of theology that John's teaching. He's saying the life of those who have been born again is not characterized by a life of sin. Rather, he lives in righteousness, and in holiness. The rest of verse 18 says, but he who, keeps, who, excuse me, but he who has been born of God keeps himself, and the wicked one does not touch him. Verse 19, we know that we are of God, and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. Now, the world here is not referring simply to the cosmos or the earth, the trees, the, the grass, the, the rocks that we see around us, but to all of humanity. And what John is saying is that the, the wicked one, that is Satan, has a controlling power over this realm, over the realm of humanity. He has power over their hearts, their desires, and so that he, he sways them in the ways in which he desires them to go which is the way of the flesh, and he has that kind of authority and power over their lives. But here's the significant factor for the believer. The believer has been transformed or transitioned from that dominion into Christ's dominion under his power and under his authority. And so, so therefore... The wicked one no longer has sway over the believer. And that significance is brought out here back in Galatians chapter 6, verse 14, where he says, By whom the world has been crucified to me. And so Paul is saying, The world no longer has influence over me. Satan no longer has influence over me. The old man, which Satan had power over, no longer has dominion over me. It has been crucified. It has been put to death. Now, thinking about this a little bit more, 
in 1 John uh, chapter 2, just turning back a few pages for where we just read. Let me turn there and read that to you. First cha- in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, John writes these words. He says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. Verse 17, And the world is passing away in the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. We see here that the believer does not have the affections of the world. The believer is not characterized as having the same affections that the world has. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, those kind of things are not of the Father. And so those who are the fathers are not characterized by these things. Their affections are not the same that the world has. In that way, we have the world has been crucified we can put it in our personal way, to me. I no longer have those affections. They have been crucified. They have been put to death. Both the old man, both those things which characterized me before, they no longer appeal to me because they have been crucified. And we'll learn later on because we have a new creation which is not characterized in the way that the world is. Paul goes on to say, not only by whom the world has been crucified to me, but also and I to the world. Now, what exactly is Paul saying here? Is there a distinction between what he has just said and, and what he says there at the end of 14, or is he just saying the same thing in a different way? I believe that Paul is making a distinction here. He's saying that that not only has the world been crucified to me, but in the world's eyes, I have been crucified. I've been put to death in their minds. I no longer am alive to them, if if we can say it that way. I have no value to them any longer. The best way that I was thinking about this is through the own experience of our Lord Jesus Christ. When he came to the earth, he did not have the kind of reception that we might expect he should have gotten from the world. Rather, instead, he was rejected by his own, and ultimately not just his own, that is, the Jews, but also by the Gentiles as well. And in a similar kind of fashion, though not exactly the same, we experience that same kind of rejection by the world, in that we see, we, they see no value in our kind of lifestyle, the allegiance, the identification that we have with Christ, it's utterly foolishness to them. 
And therefore, our ideas, our, mor- our morality, our standards have no value in society. I think we see that coming true more and more these days, where our opinion and our moral standards and our values and the way in which we think about life, what is important, has no value in this world. And so in the world's eyes, we are crucified, we are put to death. We no longer have a significance to them. Our affections do not align to the affections that they have. Our desires are unlike theirs. And therefore, we are, in a sense, cast out. Paul goes on in verse 15 to say this. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but a new creation. Now let's think about this just for a moment here. Paul has just finished rebuking and revealing the self-centered pride of the Judaizers in verses 12 through 13, where he condemns the kind of self-centered pride that was ruling and motivating their thinking and their behavior. And now he blatantly tells them and the Galatians that this circumcision that they are compelling you to do avails nothing. Or in perhaps our kind of language, has no value, has no significance, It accomplishes nothing in relationship to your relationship to God. Notice, though, that Paul doesn't just say circumcision, but he also says uncircumcision. So he points out two different ideas here, that whether you are a Jew who has been circumcised or a Judaizer, who, who believes this kind of idea, this theology, that circumcision matters. He says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to correct your thinking here and say that that doesn't matter. But also here on the other spectrum, on the other side of the spectrum, if you are uncircumcised, this has no value either. So don't take that as a means of boasting, as if one is great or the other is great. Neither one avails anything. He's exhorting the Galatians to put that kind of thinking out of your mind. Don't let it bear any significance to your salvation. But, Paul says, there's only one thing that matters. And it's not an external kind of thing. It's different than what the Judaizers have been trying to persuade you to do. This thing is a matter of importance that goes beyond externals, but the internal. And what is that? At the end of verse 15, Paul writes, but a new creation. That is what has significance. 
if there is anything that we should think of that has any value, it is the fact that we are a new creation. And that idea of being a new creation is not something that we have produced in ourselves so that we could boast in it. It is not an act of our self-accomplishment or our doing like circumcision would be, but it is an act, an internal transformation that is solely based upon the work of Christ and the Spirit's work of regeneration, justifying us in God's sight. The point is that Christianity is about transformation into a new creation, not about self-reformation, boasting in our self-accomplishments and self-achievements, self-righteousness, or just merely cleaning up the externals to look good. It's not about following a law to be saved. It's about believing in faith and undergoing a spiritual transformation that changes the mind, the heart, and the will of a person. Make sure to draw together these points in your mind that Christianity breaks us away from Judaism, as we see in verse 15. It breaks us away from the world, which we see in verse 14, in that crucifixion, symbolic crucifixion that has been undergone by the world and by us. And it brings us into a new realm, a realm in which we live in Christ and Christ alone for his glory. This is why circumcision or uncircumcision does not avail anything or have a real impact for our eternal salvation. Because these things are not originated in God. Rather, they are outer and physical. If something is to have lasting value, it must come from God, not our own hands. This is the God-centered view of salvation. And so Paul rightly points to the fact that we cannot boast except for in this very one thing, the finished work of our Lord Jesus Christ who has brought about the opportunity for us to undergo a spiritual transformation, a new kind of creation that we become that has no basis for boasting in ourselves, but only the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. So as we close this evening, I encourage you to think about what is the most important matter. And that is not a matter of what we have done past, what we are doing present in the sense of trying to gain merit with God or future. As Ephesians 2 chapter Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 says, God has created works for us to do. 
but those are alone for his glory and his honor. Nothing will replace or mirror us favor in God's eyes except what Christ has done for us, imputing his righteousness so that we in God's eyes are a new creation, a new person, a person justified in his sight. And what a glorious thing that is. Let's pray as we close this evening. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have one thing alone that we can boast in. Lord, if we were to write a list of things that we think are worthy of boasting, things that we've done to please you or to please others or to esteem ourselves in other sites, other people's sites, Lord, all those avail nothing. They are baseless. Lord, whether it be circumcision in their day or whether it be, Lord, uh, spiritual kind of reformation, merely cleaning up our externals, maybe we are putting merit in our our baptism or in or in a a prayer that we prayed or in the kind of qualities that characterize us now lord whatever things are pointed back at us lord these kind of things are baseless and so lord we boast only in what you have done we boast only in christ's cross the finished work of christ and Lord, may the significance set in about the idea that the world has been crucified to us. And in the world's eyes, I have been crucified. I am of no value to them, but I take no shame in that. Because I know that I and I believe that we are strangers in this world, only pilgrims on a journey to be welcomed into your presence, into your eternal kingdom. So, Lord, may we live in that kind of manner, unashamed by the fact that uh, our affections are set on things above, not on things below. And so we thank you for this, and we pray this in your Son's name. Amen. Thank you for those who have joined us online. We bid you adieu, and pray that the Lord will bless you and that you will be... uh, continuing to walk in a way that pleases and honors him. And uh, Lord, bless you, and for those who are here this evening, enjoy a time of fellowship, and uh, we uh, pray that you will have a safe travel home in our wintry Michigan weather tonight. Have a good evening. Thank you.